Hey listener, Chris here. Our episodes are usually around half an hour or so, but there was so much stuff that we felt was important to keep that we did not edit out much of the content. So this one's a little bit longer. It's also, some of it's kind of hard to hear, but it's a lot of good, important stuff. So I hope you stay with us and we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Want to Grow On, a show where we dig into questions about agriculture and try to understand how food production impacts us and our world. My name is Hallie Casey and I studied and currently work in agriculture. My name is Chris Casey. I'm Hallie's dad. I have not, I do not, but each episode we dig into questions that people have about agriculture and get Hallie to explain them to us a little more thoroughly. This week, farm workers' rights. <laughs> Yeah, today we are talking about farm workers' rights in honor of Cesar Chavez Day, which is the 31st of March, which I think is this upcoming Sunday. You mean after this episode drops? Yeah, once the episode airs. Yep. Which is, I didn't even know there was a Cesar Chavez Day. That's pretty cool. You didn't know who Cesar Chavez was That's when I true. proposed this episode. So topic. about, well, no, I knew I knew who he was. About, about 20 years or so ago, um, First Street turned into Cesar Chavez Street. And when that happened, I was like, who the heck is Cesar Chavez and why do we need a street named after him? Mm-hmm. And then I kind of heard that he was a, a farm workers' rights guy because, you know, we didn't have Google at the time. <laughs> and uh, it's like, oh, well, that, that sounds pretty cool. I guess that's well, – maybe it was 30 years ago. Wow. You know, I, I guess that's cool, whatever. And then the more I learned about him, the more I was like, okay, um, not only do I think it's a good thing that we named the street after him. But I'm, I'm actually going to try to stop calling it First Street, which I still do sometimes. <laughs> yeah. we we I don't know why. In Austin, we always rename the streets that are numbered. So, like, we renamed 19th Street to MLK. First Street is Cesar Chavez. Second is, like, parts of Second are Willie Nelson. I think 52nd is Barbara Jordan. It has never made sense to me why we named the numbered streets that are, like, in order instead of the other crosswise streets that are like some of them are in order but a lot of them are just random names that are have no order at all it doesn't make a lot of sense to me listener if you don't know who barbara jordan is look her up on youtube you will be impressed she's great she's a lesbian politician from the 80s who was in houston see i didn't even know she was a lesbian yeah she's like a very cool black lesbian woman congresswoman from houston she's incredible i love her so much she gave Richard Nixon a good piece of her mind. Yeah. Anyways, back to farm workers' rights. So today we are kind of talking about this issue, where it is now, where it has been. Uh, but I kind of incorporated a couple of Cesar Chavez quotes as we go along to kind of celebrate him and the work that he and some of his collaborators did. Would you like to read the first one, Dad? Sure. We shall strike. We shall organize boycotts. We shall demonstrate and have political campaigns. We shall pursue the revolution we have proposed. We are sons and daughters of the farm workers' revolution, a revolution of the poor seeking bread and justice. Hell yeah. Dang. Go Caesar. (laughs) Okay, so quickly I'm going to kind of outline the episode that we're going to be doing, just so everyone kind of knows what we're going to be talking about, because it's a bit of a difficult topic. Just so you know, we are going to be talking about sexual violence, we're going to be talking about slavery, we're going to be talking about traumatic death. 
it's generally kind of a hard topic. Hopefully we'll be able to do it some justice and give you a little bit more information because it's a really important movement in the history of civil rights. And it's currently important work that's going on today. Um, So we're going to start off by talking about some of the risks of being a farm worker to your physical health, some of the risks inherent in their work environment, some of the risks that happen in surrounding communities and to some of the families who might not be involved in farm work, but by living adjacent to agricultural areas, there are still risks. So talking about some of those. And then in the second half, we're going to be talking about the history of farm work and then the current state of farm work today. Really quickly, also, before we get started, I'm probably going to be using the term skilled and unskilled labor just as like a shorthand. Catherine and I talked about this before we did this episode, and we kind of brainstormed a couple of different words here that that we could use instead, and we weren't able to find anything that I thought was a good substitute. But farm work is not unskilled labor. There, there are skills required. It's very difficult work. And I just want to recognize that I, I think that those words are kind of flawed. And if anyone has other terminology that they suggest moving forward that we use, I think that would be awesome. But... I recognize that some of the language we use in this episode is going to be inadequate. Maybe it should be just, you know, work requiring an education versus work not requiring an education. Yeah, that's kind of, we, we talked about a couple of different things like that, and it, it just seemed like a lot wordier. It seemed like it was still kind of missing some of that nuance. So we kind of landed back on skilled versus unskilled, but I recognize that these are very imperfect and do not reflect the reality. Like there are skills involved in being a farm worker. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So before we get started, Dad, do you have any particular questions going into this topic? I don't know how much you know about the history of farm workers' rights or anything like that. So I know nothing about the history of farm workers' rights. You were talking about skilled versus unskilled labor. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people sort of associate farm work with migrant workers, you know, yes. migrant farm workers. And if we didn't have good immigration, would we still have people to work the farms? If we didn't have a good pool of immigrants, would, quote unquote, nice white kids go work on farms? And mm-hmm. if so, you know, how would that change the farm workers movement? Would, would people c- care more about safety, risk mitigation, things like that? Oh, those are interesting questions. So there's there's like this whole slew of, of economic and, and cultural things that I'm thinking about, both in terms of the size of wages, the price of food, and how people are thought of and treated. Yeah, these are all really important questions, I think. As we go through the episode, it's going to become increasingly clear that immigration is a farm workers' rights issue and vice versa. Farm workers' rights is an immigration issue because so, so many of our farm workers are immigrants. Yeah, that's such a good question. I would love to kind of go through and talk about what farm workers face and kind of the, the history of of that and then maybe circle back around to that question of like, if we had different people doing this work, would it be the same kind of landscape? So could, could we kind of go through the research and then maybe circle back around at the end to address those questions? Because I think those are really awesome questions. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's start off with some of the risks of being a farm worker. It's very dangerous work. It is the third most dangerous profession in the United States. In 2016, 417 farm workers died on the job, which was a death rate of 21.4 per 100,000, where the average for all U.S. workers is 3.7. That's, so it's yeah, almost seven times the average. 
Yeah, it's huge. A lot of these deaths are from transportation and large machinery, things like tractors flipping and stuff like that. You deal with a lot of large machinery whenever you're a farm worker. So that's where a lot of these acute deaths come from. I don't think that's a term, but like, you know, immediate traumatic violent deaths. However, there are other risks that can also put your life at risk that are not maybe like immediate and traumatic. So you have an increased risk of skin cancer because you're out in the sun working all day. There's also an increased risk of almost every other kind of cancer, and it's unclear where this comes from and and why this is happening. This is currently being studied a lot. There's a study out of the University of Iowa that looked at Iowan farmers and farm workers, and leukemia and lymphoma occurred almost 25% more in farmer populations than in the general population. Leukemia is also really common among poultry and dairy workers. There are other types of cancer as well that are also much more likely to occur if you work in the agriculture industry as a farm worker or as a farmer, and it's unclear whether it's correlation or causation is coming from. And it's currently being studied a lot, but it's a huge risk that farm workers take. You also have a risk of brain damage due to pesticide and herbicide applications. Exposure to to pesticides and herbicides can happen when you're spraying these applications or if you're handling the bottles or if you enter a field when this has been sprayed recently and the residue is still in the field. Pesticides and herbicides that we currently spray are very bad. They are not good for humans or really any animals. So pesticides and herbicides have been shown to cause death, seizures, loss of consciousness, coma, mental confusion, frothing at the mouth, and they've been linked to reproductive problems, premature birth, dementia, diabetes, cancer, memory loss, infertility. And this is kind of a whole host of issues that can be linked to different distinct pesticides and herbicides, but common pesticides and herbicides, because that's how we kill insects and stuff like that, is is we have these things that are specifically designed to damage living things and we are living things yeah um mm -hmm. pesticides are are frequently neurotoxins aren't they yes which is why a lot of the things that you see here are neurological disorders like seizures coma loss of consciousness a lot of these are because the things that we're applying things like organophosphates are explicitly nerve agents and neurotoxins we found a statistic from the southern poverty law center that said that each year there's an estimated 10 to 20,000 physician-diagnosed pesticide poisonings in the U.S. That's a lot. It's a lot, especially when you think about how farm workers might not always be the kind of population that is able to go to a physician and get a diagnosis. So this is probably a small fraction of the actual problem. Wow. You also have things like respiratory issues from being around a lot of particulate matter in the air. There's a few different things in this category. There's one called organic dust toxic syndrome, which is very common but not lethal. There's another one that's called farmer's lung, which is less common but can cause permanent damage to the lungs of of the affected people. You also have really common things like heat stroke, uh, hearing damage due to, you know, being next to large machinery. You can also have things like poisoning from the plants themselves, which is a big issue for people like tobacco workers. If you're handling the tobacco when it's too wet, then the 
alkaloids and the tobacco can actually enter your bloodstream through your skin and it can get toxic. Wow. That's, yeah, that's not something I ever would have thought of. Yeah. I was really surprised when I learned that as well. Actually, that's not something that we talk about in class at all. So I was really shocked to hear that. There is, you know, worker protection that is certified in the law. There are like certain protective equipment that workers are supposed to wear. The EPA claims that there's 90% personal protective equipment compliance in the U.S. I don't know how accurate that number is. Farm work is something that's really hard to study, research, and oversee just because of the nature of the work. It happens in really rural areas that are hard to get to. A lot of the people who do this work are undocumented. So it's hard to check up on things like compliance rates with personal protective equipment or with bathroom breaks. There's a lot of reasons that this happens and is risky and dangerous, and it's very difficult to oversee and to actually enforce the rights that have been guaranteed through laws and through activism work. Yeah, I'm sure there's just not enough resources to keep track of all that stuff. Yeah. And a lot of the people who do this work are, you know, disenfranchised because maybe they don't speak English or maybe they don't have their papers. So they're not able to go to the authorities the same way they would be if they, you know, had a bit more privilege in this situation. Again, we're getting back to that idea of, you know, migrant farm workers largely being immigrants and how that all plays into it. Yeah, that's a big part of, I think, why this isn't an issue, you know, more in the public's view is because these are people who are often forgotten and who have a hard time having a voice in our country and in our democracy and so often get exploited and taken advantage of and their lives are put at risk because of it. So workplace environment. It's very hard work. Farm workers often have chronic pain because of the hard manual labor. There's also a big issue with sexual harassment and sexual violence in the farm work industry. Women make up about 28% of the agricultural workforce. And a study from the University of California at Santa Cruz found that 80% of women in the farm work industry, in the San Fernando Valley particularly, had experienced sexual harassment. There were a lot more details on this that Catherine was able to find out. There is research out there. I didn't really want to include any more specific details, but this is a huge problem. And I'm sorry, uh, this is this is just not really something that I want to talk about on the podcast, but I want to recognize that this is happening and this is affecting real women's actual lives and their ability to you know, make money for their children and family and support themselves. And yeah, I think that's about all that I feel comfortable saying on the podcast. That's very understandable. I think everyone understands. You also have other complicating factors due to the nature of the population that often does farm work. Farm workers often have low access to health care due to transportation or immigration status or not having the finances to pay for things like co-pays. We found a number from the Southern Poverty Law Center that said that 8% of all farm workers have health insurance, which is a very low number. Yeah, that's practically nothing. I'm very happy for those 8%, but wow. Yeah. A lot of these issues are also exacerbated because farm workers are getting older and older as the economy of Mexico gets better and as just more broadly less people are entering the agricultural workforce. Our farm workers are increasingly 
aging. <laughs> and the older folks are not are not leaving the industry. There's still jobs available for them because they're not younger folks to replace them. So these health issues just become a bit more significant. So there's there's not as many new people coming here to be migrant farm workers, in other words. Yeah. And there's different reasons for that. So we still have a fair amount of people coming over the border for temporary work visas, but we have fewer visas in total. And there's also just more generally more jobs for young people in Mexico and Central America. So we have, yeah, fewer migrant farm workers. Okay. Really quickly, one last thing. There are also risks to not just farm workers themselves, but also to their family members by being the family members of someone who works in an agricultural industry. How so? So if, for example, like if your family moves with you, but they don't work on the farm, but maybe they live near the farm, they're at risk for what's called chemical drift. So this is something that's being studied at a couple of places. There's one huge study going on at the University of California at Berkeley, where they're looking at communities that have lived in areas that are adjacent to large agricultural production. And what they found is that if, you know, you go to school or you live next to a farm, then pesticides and herbicides can drift off of the farm and onto your playground or in through your window. And kids and spouses and other family members that might be with a farm worker are also at risk for things like metabolic issues, respiratory issues. There's a higher risk of neurological diseases and behavioral and attention disorders. This is still being studied, but there is a pretty clear pattern and there is a mechanism that has been shown and seems pretty clear that, yes, these chemicals can drift and you can still be at risk even if you're not in the field yourself. Kind of like secondhand smoke, only on a much larger scale. Yeah, it's a similar concept. Wow. We've talked a lot about migrant farm workers, and I'm presuming they make up the bulk of of farm workers, but they're not the only farm workers. And given how this affects communities, I mean, this is something that affects everyone. Yeah, we found numbers that said that about 40% of farm workers were migrant workers and about 60% were undocumented. But that 60% number comes from the U.S. government and farm worker advocates believe that that number is actually much larger. Okay. So lastly, the last thing in in this first half of the episode is slavery. I assume you're not going to talk about the 1800s, 1700s? So slavery has always been a part of agricultural work in the U.S., like that is how agricultural work pretty much started, um, was the practice in the United States of forcibly bringing people from West Africa over and then enslaving them to do agricultural labor. However, this practice has existed throughout time in the U.S. and was not actually eradicated at the Emancipation Proclamation. We went on to have practices like sharecropping, which was very similar to institutionalized slavery. However, there has been slavery in the U.S., forced labor in the U.S. in recent memory. In the 1990s in Florida, there were some instances of slavery, forced labor, and this was obviously very awful. And it's kind of hard to imagine that happening in a well-regulated industry like agriculture. Actually, because of organized labor, this was something that kind of stopped being a problem in the early to mid-2000s because of advocacy work done by farmworkers and farmworker advocates. But this is still a risk that 
you know, exists within the agricultural industry. It's, it's impossible to say that this is not currently happening today. The 2000s? It stopped in the 2000s? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's shocking enough that it was happening in the 90s, but wow. Was it like at one farm or was it all across the state? So it was particularly in tomato production. Okay. It was at a couple of large tomato farms in Florida. However, in large part due to this organized labor and farm worker advocacy, Florida is now one of the best places for farm workers' rights. Uh, there's, there's a lot more oversight and it, there are just more largely better working conditions. It's one of the best places in terms of working conditions throughout the whole country. So progress is happening. People are doing really good work. Yeah, if you want more information, there's a, there's a pretty good documentary about this. And there's also a bunch of reporting. It was really well reported. We'll put more information in the show notes on that. Well, that's awesome, at least. Yeah, that's pretty great to hear. Absolutely. Well, speaking of progress, let's progress into the break. Okay, let's go. Wow, I need a break after that. Yeah, this is that's pretty good stuff. not one of the more fun episodes. No, it's a heavy episode, but it's uh, it's important stuff. I really agree, yeah. Listener, we, we really appreciate you being here and... We appreciate you subscribing and downloading. And if you want to support us more, we'd love it if you hopped over to Patreon. We got levels at $1 and $2 and $5. and Yeah, at $5, you can have access to Dad's Plan of the Month Club, where you can learn all about a special plant this month. It's everyone's Plan of the Month Club. I just do the work it's for It's kind of your Plan of the Month Club. I like it being yours. It's like your little corner. Okay. It's You, you get all your friends together and you talk about a plant and you... I don't know, paint pictures and do pottery of plants. Well, that means I can't ever get out of it. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to our Starfruit patron, Lindsay. Who at $25 a month gets all of the other benefits of the other tiers, plus some personalized plant art done by one of the three of us. Thank you, everyone, again for listening. And let's get back to the episode. Back to the episode. Okay, so are you ready to hear about the history of farm work in the U.S.? I feel like we've heard a little bit, but lay it on us. Okay, so we did not include international farm work movements. We might do a separate episode about this. Catherine like started to do the research, but we already had like so much with just farm work in the U.S. So just so you know, we're not talking about international movements. There's been a lot of dope work internationally, but this is just about the U.S. So... Again, pre-1860s, we had institutionalized government-sanctioned slavery. Um, then we had the Emancipation Proclamation, and we had sharecropping. Well, we also we also had the Civil War and amendments to the Constitution. Yes. Yeah, true. The Emancipation Proclamation is a great speech, but I don't think anyone thought it was legally binding. <laughs> okay, fair. So we had amendments to the Constitution that constitutionally outlawed slavery in the United States. We had sharecropping afterwards. Then we had in like the 1860s, there was an influx of Chinese workers who came and did a lot of agricultural work in the deep south out towards the territories, which wasn't that it was kind of like still the south, what we consider the south today, just because we were not quite that far west yet. That happened until 1882 when the Chinese Exclusion Act happened, which was basically when the federal government banned Chinese migration. So what, they just couldn't go across the country anymore? So they banned all Chinese people from coming into the country. And if you were already in the country, you couldn't leave and then come back. So we just kind of oh, had wow. many fewer Chinese workers because of that. 
Um, in World War One, we got the first agricultural guest worker visas, which are like temporary visas where people can come in for a certain number of months. And then they have to leave again at the end of the growing season. But this happened because we just had fewer young strapping men to go and work fields. You'll, you'll notice that as we go through the history, immigration as a source of cheap labor is a huge part of the history of farm work in the U.S. After World War I, we had the Dust Bowl, which is when you really started to see like white migrant farmers because you'd have people who would have been farming for a while and then their farm just blew away, turned into dust. And so they had to go and find somewhere else to use these skills that they had from managing a farm. Or you had people who were permanently working on a farm that then blew away. Maybe they weren't managing it, but they were like a long-term farm worker. Then you had kind of white migration around the U.S. where they were looking for farm work in different areas that were not as affected by the Dust Bowl. And then in World War II, we had a lot more Mexican immigration because, again, the young strapping men were off at war. And so we increased our immigration capacity from Mexico and there were a lot more folks down in Mexico who were not at war. And so they were able to come up and do some farm work for us. So I want to pause real quick because I have a sure. question. I'm been a little slow to process this, but earlier you were talking about the percentage difference between migrant and undocumented workers, yeah. and now you're talking about ag guest worker visas mm -hmm. and things like that. I always assumed migrant workers were undocumented workers. Yeah, so that's not necessarily true. Oh. We have visas currently today that are designated for migrant work. So it's folks who will come up and do a certain number of months of work and then return to their home country. A lot of this is in agriculture, but this exists in other fields as well. They have visas like this in nursing. And this is just basically, we need a lot of people in these fields. We might in the U.S. not have enough American labor to supply these positions. And so we open up temporary visas that won't necessarily be long term or be a path to citizenship, but can put bodies where they need to be in, in like working job positions. Got it. Thank you. Absolutely. So onward through history. Yes. So after World War II, we have the 1960s civil rights. And in the civil rights movement, we also had the farm workers rights movement. So this was led by a guy named Cesar Chavez and a woman named Dolores Huerta, who is not as well known in history I'm assuming because she's a woman. I'm at the point in my life where I'm willing to accept that very probably has a lot to do with it. <laughs> they co-founded a union called United Farm Workers, which is still around today, in 1962. And they, they just basically led the charge for unionizing California farm work. There was a big strike in 1965 of grapes where it lasted for like five years where People just would not work in the grape industry. And there was a boycott as well. So people weren't buying grapes. Uh, there was a march that was like 500 miles long. Cesar Chavez did a 25-day hunger strike. There were a lot of really powerful, nonviolent political actions that were taken by Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, and the other activists that were working to unionize and build farm worker rights in California. Due mostly to this advocacy work, by the 1970s, it was much more common for farm workers to have contracts, which is very important when you're trying to dispute your rights. I was going to say, you would think basic human rights are something that someone wouldn't need a contract to respect, but hey, whatever. I mean, yeah, it's... Farm work is one of those areas where it's this unseen labor 
And so it's very easy for the the basic rights of the workers to be infringed in the name of economic efficiency. So you'll have things like people will go hours working out in the sun with no water or with no bathroom breaks or no shade or, you know, things like this where it's very clear that something wrong is going on, that these people are being abused. But because it's this kind of hidden work where people don't see it, people don't think about it, it's very easy for it to happen, which is why it's so valuable to have things like unions and contracts. Indeed. So in the 1980s, the farm workers' rights movement had come to other parts of the country. So in the 1960s, it was primarily in California. But in the 1980s, this movement of giving farm workers rights had spread to other agricultural parts of the country. So, you know, most farm workers started to get things like pay stubs and job descriptions. You also had the Immigration Reform and Control Act, which allowed farm workers to gain citizenship. It created like certain paths to citizenship for farm workers. This mostly resulted in folks doing farm work and then once they gained citizenship, moving into more lucrative or less grueling work once they were a U.S. citizen and were more freely able to get work in the country. It also had the unintended consequence, I'm assuming, of employers would go and look for more undocumented workers because they were able to pay them less and they didn't have to give them things like pay stubs. I was going to say, it sounds like two unintended consequences. Yeah. The 1990s in farm work were largely dominated by this huge news story, at least how we see it in history. This is a huge part of it is this scandal in Florida of slavery in the tomato industry. You also have uh, more migrant farm workers. It, it becomes more common in the 1990s to have migrant farm workers as opposed to permanent farm workers. This is primarily because of NAFTA. NAFTA caused Mexico's corn prices to fall. So you had a lot of out-of-work farmers and farm workers who were then looking to the northern border to get a job. Wow, that's another unintended consequence. I remember everyone here was worried about local prices falling, but I guess it happened across the border and not here as much. Or at least for this, it definitely happened across the border. Yeah, I don't know that much about the history of corn prices in the U.S., but I'm assuming that the reasons that prices fell in Mexico were because corn was allowed to stay under subsidy here in the U.S. I could be wrong about that. Uh, yeah. yeah. So in the 2000s, 9-11 happened, so immigration became a huge issue in the U.S. So we ended up because of this, having fewer migrant workers, slightly fewer undocumented workers. And it became harder for folks who wanted to be migrant workers to get visas and be documented just because immigration really tightened up. So that kind of brings us to today. All right. So currently we have a visa called an H-2A, which is like 10-month employment. So this is those temporary visas we were talking about. It's really difficult to get you can't get it from every country, and it also means that your dependents are not allowed to work. So if you get this visa and you come up here with children or a spouse, then you're going to be working on a single income. Um, I have opinions. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> um, we also found estimates from the Southern Poverty Law Center that the average personal income of female crop workers is about $11,000 a year compared to male crop workers, which is $16,000 a year. Okay. Most farm workers are supposed to be paid minimum wage across the board. Recently in California, there was this big legislation that said farm workers had to be paid overtime, but that's not common in the U.S. That's not a common legislation. 
You also have differences between how people are paid. So sometimes farm workers are paid by the hour and sometimes farm workers are paid by the piece. So, you know, if you're a tomato worker, you might be paid per hour that you work or you might be paid per pound of tomato that you pick, which does things like disincentivizes breaks, which increases the risk for farm workers. Yeah, anytime you have a payment system like that, it's, I don't know, it incentivizes more labor, but at your own, at the expense of of your own health. Yeah, exactly. And of course, undocumented workers, which are at least 60% of the farm worker workforce, if not more, are very often not paid minimum wage. They're not paid what they are legally owed by the laws of the country. So we have one more quote right here from Cesar Chavez. Dad, can you read this for us? Sure. Farm workers are involved in the planting and the cultivation and the harvesting of the greatest abundance of food known in this society. They bring in so much food to feed you and me and the whole country and enough food to export to other places. The ironic thing and the tragic thing is that after they make this tremendous contribution, they don't have any money or any food left for themselves. Yeah, I think this is really true. Here in the U.S., we pay less for our food than in almost any other developed country. And that's because we are devaluing the work that farm workers do and that farmers do. You know, they are working very hard. The whole industry is working very hard to provide healthy and safe food for everyone to eat. And yet they are some of the most abused and disenfranchised workers in the country. And I agree that I think that that is really tragic. I think about, I don't remember what episode it was, but we were talking about how the percentage of household income spent on food has gone from like 40% at the turn of the 19th uh-huh. century to around 7 to 10% now. Yeah, I, th- I think those numbers are right. I'm, I don't know them off the top of my head, but that sounds about right. And it's just, I don't know. I don't want to tell people they have to give up more of their money, but maybe we can afford to spend a little more on food. Yeah, I mean, it's a... But that's that's not even the... I mean, that's just a small part of the problem. Yeah, and it's a hard thing to tell consumers because... So many of these supply chains are very opaque. And so it's hard for you to find food that was grown by farm workers who were, you know, treated well by their employer. But I I also I really want to recognize that we pay so little for our food and we're able to, you know, buy amenities and have a higher standard of living because we're paying less for our food because so many of these people put their lives and their bodies at risk and we underpay them. I mean, not we as consumers, but, you know, we as the, as a country, as a system, undervalue this labor. And because of that, we are able to buy ourselves a higher standard of living. I don't want to stop eating and I still want to buy food cheaply, but even if I if I search out food that I know is follows some sort of ethical system of production, mm-hmm. which, like you said, the whole system is opaque and there's no way I would know what even that looks like. I mean, am I even really making a dent? Yeah. I'm not going to stop buying mm-hmm. food. I would just say that if this is something that you care about and you want to work to better, work with organized labor. There are unions and there are advocacy organizations who are 
working to better this system for farm workers. So donate money to nonprofits working for farm workers. And there are certain boycotts that are called by specific organized labor groups. This is things like Wendy's, Driscoll's, which is a berry company, Views, which is an e-cigarette company. There are groups of farm workers and organized labor and advocates that are calling on consumers to boycott these organizations because of how they treat their workers. So that is some action you can take. But honestly, supporting NGOs, supporting organized labor, supporting unions is the biggest thing that you can do for farm workers. Driscoll's is like the only berry brand I ever see. There are other berry brands, I'll tell you that. Good to know. So I guess circling back to those questions you had at the beginning, do you feel like you have answers to those questions now? No. I I really don't. It's almost even more complicated Mm -hmm. because people coming here to do this work need jobs and I think they should be able to come get them. I also think people here should be able to get jobs that pay decent wages. So I, I, I don't have any answers. You know, they shouldn't be underpaid just because they're migrant workers or immigrants. You said California mandated that they be paid minimum wage. Actually, it was it was that they be paid overtime. Oh, that they be paid overtime. So I'm assuming that most farm workers are at least paid minimum wage. I mean, most most documented and contracted farm workers. But if you're undocumented, it becomes very hard to enforce those laws and those rights. And I think that that kind of gets to your question of like, you know, if American citizens were doing this work, if, you know, nice white kids were doing this work, would there be... Quote, unquote. Yeah, yeah. How how would the work environment change? And I think it would really drastically change. I think a lot of these issues stem from how the U.S. government treats undocumented workers. And the fact that the U.S. government cannot reckon with the fact that the U.S. needs more immigration than what we currently have, and the U.S immigration system currently makes it very difficult for people like farmers to staff their farms because it takes a long time. It is very difficult to get people through that system. So it's hard for people to come in legally. There are many fewer visas available than in the past. And because of this, you have all these undocumented people who are not protected in the way that they should be. And I I really think that that's the core of the farm workers' issues today is it's an immigration issue. And like you said, immigration has been made very difficult. You said we don't have as much immigration as we need, something like that, Mm -hmm. or we need more immigrants than we're getting. Is that specifically because of farm work? I don't know. I can't really speak to other industries, but I think that it's very clear. Like There have been years where farmers cannot staff their farms. And it's not because there's not enough workers in general. It's because there's not enough farm workers. Folks who are born in the U.S. are very unlikely to go and do farm work. It's just not what people want to do. It's very hard work. And so it's hard to find people who grew up privileged and, you know, with any other job prospects to do this work. So immigrants, people who are willing to travel hundreds of miles to come and do grueling and painstaking work are what farmers need. And the American government cannot reckon with the fact that, you know, immigrants are crucial to the American economy for many reasons. 
And these migrant farm workers are important. And because there's not a way for them to come in legally, and because there's not oversight enough to punish employers who are undervaluing labor of people who came in legally, who are working as legal immigrant workers or legal migrant workers, then you have this opportunity for undocumented folks because they can't get here legally. And there's not enough of a retribution to employers who employ undocumented workers and who then, you know, mistreat and undervalue their work and put them in unsafe working conditions. So (laughs) I don't know. I, I just think it's very clear just looking at this one industry that the immigration system is not serving the agricultural industry. It's not serving farm workers and it's not serving farmers. I can't help but wonder once the economy of Mexico gets so good that we pretty much lose all migrant farm workers. What's going to happen to the agricultural industry then? What's that going to look like? Yeah. I mean, it would behoove the government to be a little more proactive. Yeah. I want to be very clear. I think these people coming to do these jobs, they deserve as much pay, as much worker protection as anyone would to go do these jobs, no matter where they're from. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about this for a while now, and Listener, thank you for still being with us. I'm a little bummed out and angry. Maybe you are as well. It's just not one of those issues that people talk about a lot. No, it's not. But again, if if you want to take some kind of action on behalf of farm workers, I really strongly recommend that you support organized labor. And with that, I think we can end the episode. I've got one quote here from Dolores Huerta, who was the woman who worked alongside Cesar Chavez in the farm workers' rights movements of the 1960s. Hey, Hallie. Yeah. Would you like to read the quote from Dolores Huerta? Sure. I would love to. Every moment is an organizing opportunity. Every person is a potential activist. Every minute is a chance to change the world. Thanks for listening to this episode of One to Grow On. If you'd like to support the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash one to grow on pod. If you'd like to connect with us, find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at one to grow on pod. The show is hosted by me, Hallie Casey, and Chris Casey. It's produced by Catherine Arjay and Hallie Casey. Our music is Something Elated by Broke for Free, and our show art is by Mariah Coley. Be sure to check out the next episode in two weeks. But until then, keep on growing. Bye, everybody.